thanks so much for for playing along, um, Ala, uh, Melanie, and Vicky. Today's um, uh, last meter talks is at least as amateurish as all the previous ones on my side, and at least as professional on your side. So I'm delighted that you're helping me look a bit less stupid. Um, the theme is BIM digital twins and whatever comes next out of that space. And I think that it's an interesting conversation to have because there's lots of um, work in spatial design doesn't maybe yet link to BIM. So we can see how we put those pieces together. Maybe if you, if we all present ourselves first and then we can kind of jump into to the basics and build up the conversation piece by piece. Maybe, maybe um, Vicky, since you were the first person I invited many months ago, if you introduce yourself first, then Melanie, then Anna, well, we can take it from there. Yeah, sounds good to me. Um, so I'm Vicky Reynolds. I'm the Chief Technology Officer for an organisation called I3PT. So I look after the uh, technology strategy and implementation for the software as a service side of the business and also the services side of our business. We provide the assigned certifier slash technical advisor role across a number of projects in Ireland and the UK. Uh, my background before that though was BIM digital construction, all that kind of uh, all that kind of stuff on some major projects in the UK and uh, I get involved with quite a few different groups and initiatives and stuff. So uh, Global Vice Chair for Women in BIM, do some work with the CIOB, the IET, and generally just love to talk about technology and digitalization. So what I'll probably do a few times as we go through is make sure that we, we share what the acronyms are. So CIOB and IET, what, what are they? Um, Chartered Institute of Building. So okay. um, CIOB is yep. the... Institute for Building for the UK, um, and IET is um, Institute of Engineering and Technology. Okay, very cool. Um, thank you. Melanie, hello. Hello. Yeah, uh, so I'm Melanie Robinson, um, and I'm much less accomplished uh, than Vicky, <laughs> but uh, I work as a project manager for BIM Academy, uh, and my role there is, is pretty multifaceted in that, we, you know, we do uh, information management on live projects, but predominantly my role looks at developing uh, digital strategies for organizations. And it can be any type of organization. We're learning that it's not just about the built environment. We're extending into other spaces such as uh, mining predominantly, um, which is the, the big focus of my job at the moment. Um, but in my previous life, I was doing a PhD um, in BIM, surprisingly enough. Um, and that journey is is going to be coming to an end in a, a couple of weeks so watch this space okay great thank you anna hello hello um i'm anna waha i'm known as a digital agitator i suppose um my background is um, technology aerospace automotive and now refugee into the construction industry since 2007 i did a couple of uh, startups trying to put BIM and digital techniques, digital engineering, digital construction to work from uh, 2007 to 2014. And since then, I've been working with uh, boards and startups to try to, to change our industry, 
most notably, um, I, I chair the technology strategy for Bureau Happold Engineering, where um, technology is part of the DNA of the firm, as you can see the type of projects they attempt, and, um, and separately currently working at the Construction Innovation Hub and trying to make the digital layer work for that, um, that transforming construction initiative. Very cool. Uh, so uh, thank you. My name is John Manicherry. I um, founded a company called Base2 Data and Design about three years ago. <clears throat> and our job is to do what we call service integration in, uh, in multi-user buildings. So basically residences and offices and some other parts of the urban environment. We want to make sure that user services such as deliveries and activities that come to those buildings are spatially and in in business and operations terms integrated with the property because we believe that those kinds of things will change the nature of cities and buildings and the business models and lifestyles around them. So, for example, you know, designing a building with uh, grocery delivery included, food service included, mobility included, we think will change the way kitchens and storage and parking and entry uh, are laid out, and that will have a synergy effect on. Um, urban designs and lifestyle formats and how the economy works. But basically what it means in practice is creating service packages for property and making sure that technically they work in buildings and designing whenever possible the building around those service packages. What that's led to and where it come, where, it, where that comes from actually in terms of my former work, I wrote previously for the United Nations and wrote um, their policy on sustainable consumption, wrote the, policy, wrote the handbook, global handbook for WWF on sustainable city solutions. That's where this work sort of comes from. Where it's come from, where it's going is basically um, a broad set of issues around lifestyle and consumption, resources and urban form and housing and work types. And that's why this podcast and this sort of con content stream exists, because there's so many themes that we touch on. Why not open up that conversation? And at the center of the conversation, it certainly seems that I think this is kind of appropriate that the built environment is being digitalized in many and various ways. We've talked in other episodes of the podcast about, you know, architecture, technology and some other sort of digital things. But this is, I think, probably the practical center of the debate, which is um, just operatively what types of technical tools do most architecture, engineering, construction urban companies use and that right now is going under the heading of BIM so I'm happy to be sort of you know kicking this this conversation off with all you guys um let's start by by doing I think what we all must do almost confessionally say what we think BIM is <laughs> and maybe let's explicitly include with that digital twins if if we wouldn't otherwise do that um maybe, maybe we'll do it in reverse order this time Anna Share. I know that you could you could you could take the whole ninety minutes giving us your thesis on this. So just give us a quick version of it because we'll we've got the rest of the time to to share the bigger picture. But just share a quick version of what you what you think BIM is, digital twins are, and and very roughly where we're at in industry terms. What's it? What is it all being used for? Right. Well, what what BIM is, um, or what I think BIM is, um, is probably not very. Um, Significant, I think um, we we've landed on the word BIM in the in the early 2000s, and um, we we saw that evolve from design computation. So it's about the representation of the design, and therefore has some kind of linkage to 
um, what is it that the asset will be. I think um, we, sh we should not forget that it's a representation of the design intent and then its documentation. And what's, what's really interesting for me is that it's a digitization of that representation at a semantic level that, uh, that is the breakthrough because it starts allowing us to, to manipulate the concepts of, of beams, windows, design, room spaces, and, uh, and then right. take that to production. Um, and so yeah. we can start managing that, th th those concepts. Um, and, and of course, it is related to digital twinning because digital twinning, which again um, is, is a well-defined and understood word um, as, as the act of linking a physical process or physical asset to its digital copy and maintaining those links, so that streaming of data and intervention between the two. So obviously that digital copy um, is an, an important part of a, mm. a digital twin and, and the way we express and represent that digital copy um, when we're, digit, we, we're doing a digital twinning of an asset, then we will use the BIM techniques and the BIM data standards and the, the, the approaches and abstractions to, um, to, to manipulate the concept of space, room, building, sites, um, and, and the like. So, so they are related, but they are fundamentally different. Okay, very good. So uh, I think it was Melanie, if we're going in reverse order. Yeah, so if I, um, if I may, I take it um, back to real basics. Um, and this is coming from my lecturing days where I say, you know, we've got to think about the acronym. And I know there's, there's a bit of a movement in our community um, to move away from building information modeling and look more towards the management. But really, if we take modeling as the, simply the creation of information and that populating a spreadsheet is a form of modeling, then I don't see any reason why we can't keep pioneering um, the term building information modeling, particularly as we've come mm. so far. Mm. Um, it's all about, to me, it's all about the information and it's about the parameters that we include within that information. Um, and as we're moving towards more clever solutions, um, looking more towards uh, digital twins, um, that information just becomes ever more important. And for mm -hmm. me, the transition to a digital twin is, is moving beyond an asset information model at handover. Um, it, we're still traditionally bad at, at asset information and managing that information throughout a, a building's entire life cycle. So digital twin, for me, refocuses the conversation back on the operational phase. And sure. we hear so much about why BIM came about in the first place, and it was to... Um, see these these benefits and these um, uh, savings come through in the operational phase. Um, but that that kind of fell by the wayside as we, we looked more towards the, the capital creation of that information. Mm. Um, so that's that's my take on it. It's, it's a kind of a bit of a back to basics, but I'm a, I'm a firm mm. believer of um, establishing the basics before we go looking into um, fancy stuff, your augmented reality, virtual reality. Uh, we need to make sure that that information foundation is is firmly in place. I'm going to actually add a, add a question here. I'll come back to you, Anna, and I'll pick up the answer from you in, in, in a bit when, once we've gone th gone gone through Vicky's kind of intro. But not only just just because I'm curious, what got you into BIM? Why are you doing this? 
Well, I think so. Back in the day when uh, I was a, a university student, um, I was I was studying architectural technology, and to be honest, I I was I didn't hear anything about BIM. I didn't really know what was going on outside the university walls, um, and I got really into modeling, and that was as much you know that that's what kind of sparked it off and and then I found out about this thing called building information modeling um and it just grew and grew um and I found myself having to do um a lot on the um side to to pick up on on the uh information regarding BIM because it wasn't part of the curriculum and that a lot of that was self-taught and self-directed um which I guess led to to me undertaking the PhD um but yeah it was it was i think because i was coming through a bit of a grassroots um direction almost it was um you know just trying to to figure out what's going on and, and pull all the pieces together um so vicky please share your sort of framing of bim and digital twins from your perspective and then maybe maybe give us a clue as to what led you into this whole space as well yeah, no worries. So um, BIM for me is a, a process of information management. Um, as Melanie said, it is a model not necessarily solely based on geometry, um, but a model of information that holds as much information as is necessary for the tasks at hand, mm -hmm. which is where the difficulty in construction often lies because it means that you have to almost preempt your problems to understand how much you specify your information requirements at the beginning. Um, so then we get into conversations about contract types and capabilities of clients and all that kind of um, good meaty stuff. Um, and uh, I, I think we have a very solid understanding and definition of what BIM is in the construction industry now, I think not necessarily expanded to the built environment yet. So mm. we're talking about the, the operations phase. Um, mm. I think there's still some work to be done there. But it, And then in terms of digital twins, um, I would say someone mentioned earlier, it, it might have been Alan or it might have been Melanie, that the digital tw twin is, is well-defined as a term. And... I'm not 100% convinced that it is. Um, mm. I find far more disparity in other people's definition of a digital twin than, than I do or ever have done with BIM. Um, mm. But in, in, under my understanding, um, a digital twin is a, is a two-way uh, carry of information between the virtual and the physical where one affects the other and the information is shared at the right time, not necessarily real time so you might have a virtual version of a building um, and the uh, the information in the virtual version or sorry the information coming from the physical version of that might be um, statistics from the heating system or the, the temp a temperature gauge which would feed back into the virtual encourage the digital twin to make certain decisions which then would impact for instance, whether it turns the heating up or down, and that kind of that kind of um, uh, relationship there, it's not necessarily, in my opinion, 
reliant on geometry, especially not in such a way as BIM is, because BIM is about the construction of a building. So it really helps to have the geometry for human beings to be able to understand that. Um, I think in a digital twin, a lot of it is more more around machine reading and ma machine um, analysis, and therefore we don't necessarily need that geometry. Um, but either either way, depending on, on what solution you're looking at, you have to be fixing real life problems and not just do the cool stuff. Um, and uh, I think that's my... I'm not sure what cool stuff you're talking about, but I think everyone's lacking cool stuff in their careers these days. No, carry on. I'm being cynical. <laughs> no, no, I, mean, I see it all the time, in, or I used to see it all the time when, when it was my job, um, reviewing BIM execution plans and everybody's going on about... Um, uh, all these cool, like we're gonna we're gonna use 4D and 5D, and we're gonna do all of this analysis. Right. And then you ask them why, and they don't really know why. That's what you mean, um, yeah. And so you've got to you've got to figure out the why. What are the problems that you've got that you know you have, and then how how can you best solve them? And then when you've got all that in hand, you can start doing the sexy, cool stuff on top of that because you'll have set your foundation. Um, but that that works in terms of sales as well. You know, you can't sell a solution to someone unless they have a problem. And that was a big issue with trying to push BIM initially as we we said to people, we're not good enough and here's the solution. But we didn't really explain the problems properly and how the solution direct, directly related. Um, and that was sort of how I got into all of it in the beginning. I, I worked in information management and document control when I first started in construction. And right. um, it just was a natural progression for me coming in, seeing this absolute disarray on a construction site and thinking surely we can digitalize this it just makes more sense to to put this online and to and as soon as I started being exposed to to BIM and to models and all that kind of the technology there it just made sense I was like I have to I have to do this because it's the the right thing to do it's solving a real problem Okay, thank you. And uh, um, so you mentioned that you were a refugee from automotive and aerospace into into AEC. Um, why? <laughs> I, that's a really good question. Um, as all these things, they happened by accident, um, and and I just stayed. So yeah, in two thousand six seven, I had done quite a few interesting things. Um, on terms of digitalization and digital transformation, as we call it now. So servitization, power by the hour, power by the mile. And, um, and, and so we had understood in these other industry what happens once you start managing the information at much higher frequency and with a higher resolution. And, mm -hmm. and when you went into this digital medium and, and started changing business models, and when I came to the construction industry, I was, I was invited um, by venture capitalists that had a, a scale up. And um, it was really interesting to see the potential um, that essentially I had lived 20 years earlier. We could see that the, you know, now we understand so much more about digital. Digital transformation is about the marginal cost of information going to zero. And so, so when you saw that radical reduction of the cost of, um, of information in automotive, you could reimagine your supply chain, you could reimagine 
how you could uh, serve the customer starting to have customer on-demand order. So we moved our, our supply chain from um, build to stock to build to order to configuration management to configure to order. Um, and and um, so, you know, we launched what was called at the time the three-day car. And I'm very happy that now the industry is looking at the seven-day house as a way to learn from these other industries. And I think I stayed, um, well, because, of course, I, I had this sense that I knew what was going to happen because I'd seen it happen. Uh, I'd seen auto aerospace go to digital and I'd seen automotive go to digital. But I also felt that it actually had something more profound and interesting. The built world is where we live. Who needs another car, really? Um, you know, and hence the servitization of mobility and, and going to Uber and Lyft and micro mobility. But, um, you know, the built space, unfortunately, is, uh, it was the next frontier. It's much bigger than any of these other industries. The industry, the, the, the quantum of information is much greater. Um, mm. For example, we delivered Tottenham uh, Hotspurs, you know, to give these numbers. Tottenham Hotspurs at, at contract tender, the information density and the information quantity is equivalent to a, a 737 or an mm. Airbus A320. So, mm. so it's not that much information. I think it takes about 40 milliseconds for the city of London to generate that, that quantum of information. But mm. so we, we face the problem that the information type is, is more complex. Um, mm. And I can give many examples of, because we're describing experience and spaces rather than mm. just things. And of course, the, the industry is much bigger and much more exploded and much more distributed. So it makes it much more complicated. And so we needed to get to a time where the technology was just simpler, easier, um, and, and radically more, um, more purposeful. And so I stayed. Um, and and I'm, you know, I've been Still deceived here. many times that it was going to that it was going to happen, but uh, there we go. We're still here pushing. So thank you for that. That was fascinating. Um, so so, so I mean, we're going to build out all of these themes bit by bit, but what I wanted to start with is stuff that's, that right now isn't really called BIM, but might be, or digital twins, but might be called that or could be pulled into the space uh, in the near future. And so maybe kind of gra grab you know things share with me your thoughts on things that you think um might be coming into the bim space in the near future how and why it could be a technology it could be a, a process it could be a, some kind of governance issue i'll give you some examples so for example um vr is that going to be i mean right now it's not really inside bim as a workflow or as a technology but is it should it be, um, you know, there's legislation always, you know, under discussion in the UK on terms of green housing and insulation, but it's not really part of BIM workflows or BIM technology or BIM culture. So there's a governance issue. I think things that are on the margins of, of, of BIM and digital twins and the, te the technology there, is there, are there things that occur to you that are coming in will influence the BIM conversation that aren't yet at the center of it? Maybe start with Melanie. I think we'll probably see um, more in the standardization space um, in terms of creating a, a level of 
general expectation across the industry. Um, and I'm thinking more predominantly towards sustainability, um, which is equally, if not more of an important conversation to have um, and an ever important conversation to have, um, not just in the built environment, but um, globally as well. Um, what that looks like, I'm not quite sure, but I believe the um, BIM is going to be forming some sort of foundation and as are the standards that are coming out of BIM. I, I'm not sure if there's any other pocket of industry that is inherently reliant on standards as much as BIM is. Mm. We, we hear a, a lot of times about um, standards um, for making a cup of tea and um, standards for, well, or anything and everything, but we still couldn't tell you what they are off the top of our heads, unlike in mm. our little BIM space. And even in our BIM space, the standards that um, you or I have probably haven't even batted an eyelid at. So it's probably going to, to take a while to see any of um, the cool stuff or the sexy cool stuff that Vicky alluded to come through. Um, but I, I think that's mainly because it's not inherently necessary at this moment in time. It's It's definitely great and if the money's there to spend on it then fantastic but in terms of added value I'm, I'm really not sure if we can quantify that um as much as we could if we we were looking at the um sustainability agenda so so sustainability and standards i mean if we if we take standards broadly for a second i'm just curious what you think are there i mean do you think that there is sufficient standardization in the in in the area for example of ifc and building model categories is there standardization are there other standards rather than just sustainability standards that you think are going to evolve because that is, i think is a really important question are there other dynamics so because for example one idea could be workflow standards right document types could be standardized across the industry where do you think the standards conversation i mean there's obviously a subset of the conversation but i'm curious for this one just for just for now standards yeah. in general in bim what what is your quick comment on that my quick comment is that it's a fine line to tread um because as much as i i believe standardization is the the way forward it's about not prescribing um too much about what people are doing and still leaving that that room for um expansion and um interpretation and innovation um and whether that comes from the um file format space such as ifc as you mentioned and yeah. sharing um i just believe that there will be some involvement and we do need involvement it's just to what degree i think is the question that we need to be asking for sustainability standards, are you referring to LEED or BREAM or more kind of regulatory standards that the government can impose? What, what, what just, just quickly flavor that for me. Yeah, no, um, I guess by standards, I meant the just general um, governance, um, and that can include the certification right. um, as well as, yeah. I guess, the ISOs and the, the BSs that we're, we're accustomed yeah. to. Um, so, um, so Vicky, what what is what is out there at the edge of BIM that you think will come closer to the centre and be influential in the coming years? I think we've got no choice but to get better at or to pay more attention to information and information management and the languages that we use, um, and that that will come from um, more more data collection points. So already we're starting to see um, IoT sensors, smart machines, robots, all of these um, 
all of these new technologies on sites specifically mm. um, that are all collecting data and information. And at the moment, we don't know what to do with it. So you have that one person <laughs> yes. who will be looking exactly. at the um, planning information and one person who looks at the cost information. If you want to pull yeah. the two together, those two people sit together and create a spread- spreadsheet or they, yeah. um, you, you know, or there's some kind of human mapping involved. I think the next step for us really is figuring out how we make those connections across those different languages, how we make our systems more interoperable. There's an element of machine learning and AI that will start to um, recognize when when this language says this, it, it relates to this phrase or this term in in this language or this coding or whatever um, and that really is when we'll see that massive shift between us using technology for tasks and technology leading our projects um, I, I, so data is the is the is the big one are there other sort of innovationy maybe it doesn't have to be innovation but things at the margins of BIM that are going to come into to the, to the sort of center ground. I, I mean, I'll yeah. comment, I mean, I think data is obviously, I actually agree with you, I think data, data in, in a broad sense, like how we handle data is probably ultimately the, actually the biggest one, but are there other ones that you that you see? Yeah, absolutely. So um, it will, sensors and um, smart machines and things like that in our on our right. sites and in our buildings that will be able to tell us when we've, um, when our skips are full mm. for instance or um when this machinery needs its next um service and all that kind of stuff mm. that you know we already have uh cameras and stuff on site that can pinpoint people not wearing their ppe appropriately yeah. um i think that is going to be the next serious increase um along with uh the robotics and i mean i'm sure that we've all seen spot the robot dog um, yeah. actually is turning out to be a very useful addition to a site because uh, machinery and robots are doing those uh, manual tasks, those repetitive tasks that actually don't need a human being. They don't need to take up the, the human mind space. We can focus our energies on, on things that add more value. Um, so I think that's probably going to be uh, what we see an influx of next. Mm. But all of that... Right is then collecting information and data that at the moment we we're not exactly. utilizing properly yeah so both both sides like data handling and data generation are two sides very interesting i mean what, what i do notice that, that that there's a lot of com i mean there and there has been for a while obviously conversation around you know the the volume of data that's building up or will build up in the, in the tidal waves of data but tidal waves are not good things <laughs> no one wants to be confronting a tidal wave and so it shouldn't be an exciting thing that we're confronted with unmanageable data we have to have a much more robust uh, approach I think you're exactly right and Anna, w w give me a couple of things that you think are on the margins of BIM and digital twins right now but are going to come and be influential in the conversation whether or not you know we like it in the coming years yeah, I, th I think um, we need to look at the purpose. I think Vicky made the point very well earlier on that, you know, it, it's about purpose and where it becomes self-defeating is when you call it BIM. In fact, um, you know, I remember I'm old enough 
that we were talking about you know a computer on every desk and then a computer in every house and a computer in every hand and um, and that purpose was you know equipping with much better information everyone that was running a business or running their life and would it not be cool if they could all send an email to each other and it seemed insane you know it's like 1985 and of course the one big lesson uh, that we tend to forget is that once it's in every people's hand we call it something else um, mm. it just happened that we call it a smartphone um, mm. the, you know the, the vision of a computer in every hand and 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 being and, and, and delivering a purpose um, is, is comes from quite an indirect way and and it's called something else so my first mm. thing to say it's not going to be called BIM it's not mm. going to be called BIM 4d or 3d or clash detection mm. that's insanity um, it's going to be built upon. So let's have a look at two things, right? The first breakthrough is that if information is indeed better managed and available because it's now semantic and at scale and, and, and extensible and the data formats are, if not standardized, actually mappable, um, preferably orthogonal. And, and in that context, then you build on top. Um, and, and I think you don't have to go very far to, to see what happens. So obviously with that better information, I think the main thing that we unlock is certainty. So, so the, the, the problem we got to in the built environment is the representation of it just becomes too complex for mm. an A0 page and a human brain. And mm. we cannot apply computational techniques to reduce mm. that complexity until you've put the information into a, a, a computer-readable form. So BIM does that, mm. and then let's get to work, right? Um, so what do you want to do? Um, the, the, the first thing, of course, is those that make, and make intervention on the built environment, they would like to describe and predict what that intervention is going to be. So, so obviously, we are seeing right now that the, the, we are encoding the knowledge of, of what the design intervention might be or what drives it. So, so we don't put a beam inside, a, 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 a structural beam inside a BIM model. We say to the computer, we want to put structural vertical column made out of steel whose dimensions are based on the loads that are calculated into this piece of software and which geometric position is based on this grid that's aligned to the architectural intent. We capture that as a forcing function, and then a beam gets instantiated to the right size and the right space. Mm -hmm. But of course, as soon as you've done that, you can vary the, the materiality, you can vary the loads, you can vary the grid, and let the computer react. And um, we get to you know, near real-time design of Stadia, for example. So that's really, really interesting because... So you know, you, 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 you link materiality and design creativity back to, mm. to, to an intervention and you predict mm. what that impact's going to be. And that's how design is sort of evolving very, very rapidly, becomes multi-party. And if you push it into mm. a game engine, you can get, you know, very, very quickly, very wide engagement. So what it sounds like, if I'm, if I'm going to just interpret what, what you said and if I understand it correctly, is that when I ask you, you know, what's going to come into BIM and influence it, what you're basically saying is, look, there's a, there's a flood of data coming on the one side 
and there's a flood uh, or there's a there's a there's a there's a universe of new and evolved purposes on the other side and BIM is pulling data to those new purposes so it's the opposite BIM as it were is being pulled into a new world and it's going to be a kind of connective preparatory organizational layer in these evolving functions for the built environment that pull data through to these new opportunities so it's the opposite BIM is going to get pulled into a world where it will become less visible um, and the functions and the purposes that we're imagining and designing for will be yeah, that's really interesting. And I think that's where word matters, right? So word matters because if we can agree a definition of word, then our knowledge becomes additive. If you decide yeah. to change the definition of the word, it's very difficult yeah. for knowledge to become additive. So building information modeling, you have to be very careful with that modeling term because modeling was conceived as the act of describing the design yeah. intents into a yeah. semantic language. And I don't yeah. think that that's really useful for what we're trying to put building information model, which are semantic representation of the built world or the design intents. Mm. And, you know, I think we, that, we have yeah, to I, be focused on that. I, 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 I'm sure that's true. I mean, I, I, what I think in terms of, you know, if I, if I uh, put, put, put what you all set together a little bit, um, I think the um, the sort of object level encoding in BIM of how these elements fit together in a practical way and how you draw them, you know, in an expedited way, does actually miss the the the, the sort of broader implications of, for example, sustainability. Um, and that is one of the outputs we want to design for. And I do think that BIM is failing to deliver on that front because. It's somehow a, a separate feature. It ought to be the case that just just like you cannot, if you use your BIM tools correctly, fail to create a building that looks and possibly even is engineer, engineered in an acceptable way. It should be the case that you cannot design an unsustainable building if BIM tools work in the way they should. And I think that's that's to your point, Melanie, about standards. It makes sense that if we bring standards more closely into the into the tools and the and the profession, that they just help you generate sustainable buildings as a standard. As for you know data, I think that's exactly right uh, in terms of your point, um, Vicky, both in terms of the, the fact that you know more and more data is gonna come from sensors and robots and different sources, but also that it needs to be handled correctly because if we're going to design for you know a whole variety of richer functions and purposes, as Alan is, in, Alan is implying, we, we're gonna have to manage the data better. Right? I think because, there's you know, a a point there as well though i mean you say bim has failed sustainability bim hasn't failed anything we have failed to utilize bim <laughs> yes. for sustainability purposes and that is the that's the mindset problem that we sometimes have across the built environment is that we blame the technology we we blame the solution it's not the technology and the solution it's our use of it and it's the human element that is causing the issue at the moment. I think that's exactly right. I think that's exactly the point that we need to, to get to the, to the force. There is here an exponential silicon-based technology that's just about getting usable. And we need to put it in the hands of the, sustain, the sustainability designers that could mm. then mm. achieve the breakthrough. So, so mm. you know... I don't think BIM has failed in the sense that the technology doesn't work or, or we're not seeing an impact. What, what may not yet have happened is that where that impact is, is happening, 
um, you, you don't necessarily call it BIM. Um, mm-hmm. That's the first thing. And the second is, has it realistically caused and, and generated the impact that we are hoping for? Not yet. Um, okay, so, so on that point, let me jump onto that point and talk about the users and the community and the culture around BIM and digital twins. Um, so so you, you were very specific on that, on, that, on that, Vicky. Who are the users of BIM and why do they not use it sufficiently, in my view? And I, I, let's hope that in society's view, since most buildings are not particularly sustainable even now, even new ones, uh, why is it or how is it who are the users of BIM? And for example, how do we get them to deploy sustainability into their use of these tools? I think that's that question is asked almost the wrong way round. It's not about the users of BIM. It's who who should be using BIM. Um, yeah. And because the users at the moment are BIM managers, digital managers, it's that additional mm-hmm. silo or that additional person, almost as if you can say, right, this this is a, a function on its own within the project environment, which it's not. It can't be an add-on. It's, it would be like hiring someone to use your mobile phone for you. Absolutely. Uh, this just... is exactly it. I, I, Sorry, Vicky, I think... carry, on, carry on. I just want to hear Vicky kind of fill out that point a bit. No, no, it's it, that, that was pretty much it. I mean, until we are at a point where um, everybody just uses technology as their business as usual which we're which we're moving towards um then it's we're not going to get anywhere sustainability managers just need to be comfortable enough to use digital tools and then bam you'll see this massive increase in um, in success let let me give you a, a pertinent example which i think exemplify both this in practice and and at the cultural level in specific I was asked at Bureau Happel in 2014, what are we going to do about BIM? And I said, we're going to make it business as usual. And when it's business as usual, we know we're there because we're not talking about it anymore. Mm-hmm. Think about BIM as email. When we rolled out email, there were lots of people that were very important and they'd seen the future and they called it the internet and we're going to expand message. And you know what we saw? We saw people saying two things. First, um, they asked their secretary to print the email so they could read it. They would then mm-hmm. dictate an answer and the email would be typed. They would be reprinted. They would check the printed version of the email. It would be corrected and then sent. Um, and, and of course, that was very cultural. And then people asked, what's the ROI of email? Can you imagine a business that doesn't have email today? <laughs> no, of course not. They'd say, well, what's the ROI of email? I mean, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to buy a PC. I'm going to learn to type. I'm going to save stamps. There's no ROI for email. And yeah. I think BIM was this thing. It's, it's culturally, you know, we made too much a thing of it. Um, there is a BIM church out there that, that propagates a religious belief in BIM 5D and BIM 4D. These things don't exist. They are planners that are making use of better technology, which is the semantic representation of the built asset that they are planning to build, construct, disassemble, manage. And they're going to do that with the use of computer augmented design tools. And and then it's in the hands of the sustainability experts. Then it's the hands of the planner. It's in the hands of the project managers. And it's not called BIM anymore. And that's a big problem for the BIM church because they're important, 
because in their echo chamber they talk about standards and about bim 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 things okay. but actually we'll, 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 it's not we'll, helping we'll come we'll come back to that in a second so we, so we can kind of launch that boil we have to get onto what this bim church is and then we can we, we can move on for it because it's quite interesting but for, first melanie you're you're kind of at the cold face of this as, as i understand in your work in terms of working with bim bim users let me shift the question slightly. I, I was chided by Vicky quite appropriately. What is the user dynamic around BIM and how do we enable it to be more effective in terms of sustainability outcomes, for example? So it still very much is, is a bolt-on, um, as, as everyone has alluded to. Um, and, you know, in, in my role as, as information manager on, on projects, I, I feel that very much so. And it's it's difficult trying to stoke those conversations to to move it away mm. from it's me and you it's us and we're in it to for a common goal and we're actually going in the same direction and actually applying the same techniques to to get to that common goal um but for some reason we're we're still seen as this police officer almost that comes in <laughs> to regulate how they're dealing with the information but at the same time we still need those roles in projects now until it becomes commonplace that um, it's just the way we work. And, and to a large extent, I believe it's generational. Um, I believe that, um, you know, give it 10, 20 years and um, people will just be doing this as, as part of the course. Um, and maybe there are those that disagree with me out there, but the way I see it is the use of computers um, and the use of, of modeling techniques and tools and, and that, um, covers the multitude of, of the BIM techniques, um, you know, are, are being taught at, at school level now. Um, you know, I, I've missed out on the whole coding um, side of things, but now there's there's people much younger than me who can code whole programs. So I believe those skill sets will come to fruition in, in terms of BIM uses uh, and make them more um, understandable it's it's coming in at the bottom and to inform it to inform like management and and um other big wigs on, on how we can improve our processes um and with regards to to sustainability um i think that just comes as part of it um so you won't have to get the the old guys who um have done this all their lives to to learn something new it will be a balancing act between those that have these capabilities and are able to um, come up with really innovative techniques, working with the knowledge of those that have been in industry for years, have seen it mature, have seen, um, you know, how to apply the techniques, the sustainability techniques that work and that don't work. And I, I think we're at this really exciting time where we're bringing together these these generations to, and we, we've got the potential um, to basically realize some of these uh, goals that we've been setting ourselves for years. Um, so this church of this church of BIM, right? I'll come back, come back to you, Anna, in a second. But do you recognize that phrase, uh, Vicky and Melanie? Does that, do you have a sense that there is a kind of, because it could be us, right? I, mean, I certainly, I, I know that I've had that experience myself inside architecture offices where I'm like, you guys shouldn't use BIM tools if they're not using BIM tools. So I, I might be one of the, I might be a member of the church by accident, Anna, but Vicky and Melanie, do you, do you recognize that? And then there's a question that's going to follow it, um, which is, if it isn't the church of BIM that's buying BIM software, 
in companies, who is buying it and why are they buying it? Sort of reframing the question from different perspectives. But is there a church of BIM? What is it? Who is it? If you don't mind, I'll just jump in here. Um, I've never heard it be called Church of BIM, but um, I'm, I'm quite enjoying that terminology. Um, there definitely is, I think, a gap between those that propagate the, the BIM agenda vocally and those who have no interest in it whatsoever. And I think that gap seems to be widening. And I think um, it's really easy to to get lost in your own community without looking at who else is is mean to to join us in this industry journey that we're taking i think a lot of it can appear intimidating um mm. from the outside in um, there's a lot of conversations about um albeit still important stuff like classification codes and um really getting down to the nitty-gritty but from the outside where you don't know what classification codes are and you don't know what value they bring um to what we're trying to achieve then it can seem like a foreign language and it can appear as if uh, these people who, who talk and debate and, and lively debate at that, um, you know, the, these elements, it, it seems that like they just unattainable. I don't know if that's a word, um, but I'll, I'll pass the, the mic on to anyone else who, who's got some insight here. But that's my wait, two wait, cents. Wait, wait, wait. So you mean, you mean they're unattainable in the sense people just don't understand what's going on? It, it can appear as if, I mean, this is this is my obviously my own personal opinion. It it it's in, intimidating. I think is is the word, in that it's yeah, it's it's almost like there's this level of expertise that you need to enter the BIM gateway to to get on okay. that BIM journey and to step up and join us. When in so reality, me, it's not. Let me let me let me sort of finish that. Who are the people that feel intimidated and shouldn't? Like what categories of people? Are we talking construction workers? We're we talking architects, we're we talking city planners. Who who is most intimidated? You can be honest. It's not that black uh, and white. Sorry, Melanie. Yeah. You go ahead. No, no, I was just gonna say, um, from my experience, it, it can be anyone. It, it can yeah. be anyone that um is is active on in social media. And obviously social media is only a fraction of, of what reality shows. Um, yeah. But I, I know um, some clients can, and in particular, and I'm thinking predominantly from a, a client perspective because they're the ones that, that enable us to, to go on this this journey that we're all taking. Um, you know, it can seem a bit out of reach. Um, but yeah, okay. Vicky, go ahead. Sorry, no, no. I was just going to say, um, in in terms of who is intimidated, it's not it's not planners or designers or contract managers or construction workers it's it's more of a um it's a cultural thing so right. i right. i agree with what melanie said i would probably um i'd probably query the age or generational comment just because mm. from my own experience it tends to not necessarily be about someone's age or the generation um it's more about the the culture that that they are in um, and their comfort levels, which then will determine how open they are to, to BIM and new technology. It's very hard to lift your head above the parapet if you know that you're, it's going to get shot off if you do. Um, and wait, 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 wait. To, wait to, I mean, that's too, that's, I, that's too important to let go. What, what, what is the cultural def, definer mm-hmm. of, of, some, of, a, of, an, of an environment that invites people to engage with BIM and be confident about it? Is it technical leadership? Is it experimentation? Can maybe, maybe you add some... It's, some, it's some general it's general good good culture for collaboration for idea mm. sharing it doesn't necessarily need to be in the scope of of technology um i've i've worked on some great sites where there is an element of 
respect across the whole team where everyone feels like they can take a solution to the project director and put their case across. If it looks like it's valuable, they'll invest in it. The problem is that there is so little cash flying around for those kind of investments in construction. Margins are so mm. low. And so it can be very difficult to be the one who tries to justify an extra expense if you're not 100% mm. sure that it will be successful. And I think the mandate, just changing the the um, conversation slightly, that the mandate in 2016 was a very interesting case study in culture because what it did is it was not necessarily marketed in the right way. And I think that is the right term, marketed. Um, yeah. you, um, it, it was suddenly a requirement to deliver BIM on certain types of projects and that so it's in mandate in 2016 where you were referring to a specific mandate. Uh, yeah, so in 2016 it was it became a mandate that all government projects over a certain size, which was quite a small um, a small size, had to be delivered using BIM. Uh-huh, okay. um, and there was a little bit of preparation time, but really what it developed was this culture of us against the BIM. So people across <laughs> sites all over the place were suddenly like, well, this absolutely unreasonable mandate and requirement has come in. So what we'll do is we'll hire someone to deliver that and then we'll all sit comfortably being angry at the fact that we were forced into something that, that's unreasonable. Um, and then that culture has just grown and grown and grown. I yeah. think if there was a better marketing around the mandate, I think if it had come in, it would be more successful. It's almost 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 the case that if you I mean back to your point, Melanie, about re- about standards and implicitly behind that regulation, if you regulate a standard, which seems to be something that happened in the BIM mandate in the UK from from government buildings from twenty sixteen, you can actually end up creating the wrong culture, right? Which is something we have to do, but we do not want to do. We do not embrace it organically. We're just doing it because we're told to, and actually, the culture is going in the wrong direction, which just seems to be part of your I uh, think point, Vicky. And I shoot because I know that you you want to you want to tear down the church of Ben. So go. No, I I I think it's it was very insightful. I think that first, I, I think it was more indifference um, right. towards the BIM. Um, church. Um, I, I think we have data that shows that you know there is this BIM bubble where people talk bim, 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 and they don't connect with sustainability or things that actually matter, risk reduction. Um, I, I think it's, it's um, the, the second point you were making, John, around organic. I think the mandate was seen as a huge opportunity. And in fact, um, it, 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 it is interesting to reflect now that we've had a few years. The, I see much more organic adoption um, in in uh, construction in in the US, uh, where 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 it's called VDC, um, it's it's seen as a better way to build. Um, it's more profitable. It's uh, it's lower risk, um, and and the the, the boards understands it. Um, and so the mandate, if I go back to my email analogy, essentially, the 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 government started from a very strong, valid hypothesis that if as a buyer they said, I'm going to procure and I'm going to put all the projects I procure over which I have a lever into a collaborative BIM workflow, I'm, I'm going to get better value. And I, and I think that was, that was a great hypothesis. The, the, the challenge then was, you know, 
it's like the government saying, well, from, from the 1st of January 1980, I will transmit all my bids through email because yeah. I have this hypothesis that if all companies adopt email, then they'll work better and I'll create standards and, it's, and, and all the companies in the UK are going to invest in email and then going to operate better. And, mm. and this is going to lead to a, a jump in, in productivity in, in that industry. And in fact, mm. it's interesting. That's exactly what the French government did with Minitel. Um, and then we can look at exactly what happens thereafter. What happened is that every single UK construction firm invested to comply. It bought one email station, put it in the corner with the email manager, and the email manager received the email, printed it, and nothing changed in the company. Sorry, I'll rephrase that to the 2016 version. They bought one BIM manager that wrote the BIM policy, that got it to the board, they said, well, boss, we have a business plan to equip and change the company. It costs 5 million quids and we'll get better. Or we can just buy one machine, print all the drawings and continue working like we never done, we've always done before. They say, I like the sound of the second one. And yeah. that's it. That's generated this new role in every company. And that's the... That's the church that, you know, a bit like the BIM Anonymous keeps on meeting at BIM conferences talking about how their big bosses still haven't got it. So in a way, actually, if I understand you correctly, the church is like a kind of meta institution. It's not it's not necessarily. I mean, there's, there's obviously BIM evangelicals, as it were, tearing, tearing around saying BIM, BIM is the thing to, to do in this space. But there's also just the institutional expectations that we all go, we all worship the altar of BIM, which regulation can enforce. But quietly, we're all sinning. As it were, <laughs> that's a horrible analogy. We're all sinning with paper. I'm going to steer it in the correct direction. We're all sinning with paper copies of our drawings, as opposed to fully interactive. Yeah, I, look, let's 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 challenge yourself. What percentage of the engineering information in a construction company is held on digital paper, and which percentage of it is consumed in okay. model? Well, wait a minute. Let's let's turn it around this way. So culturally speaking, because we've got a bunch of stuff to get through yet, let's just let's park this one here because I think we have a, we, I think pretty much everyone who's going to listen to this probably has the same sense. So let's let's add thought into this into the space of culturally, what's a solution? Whether it's you know in terms of regulation or how you run a company or how you train or whatever, just give me some thoughts around cultural evolution that facilitates. Um, more effective use of BIM and less sort of church churchification of the implications of BIM. So start stop with, thinking, with yeah, culturally, we need to stop thinking of it as BIM. Right, I so mean, culturally, it just has to be we 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 can do this better. We can be better. We're and we're holding ourselves to higher standards. And I think things like the Grenfell disaster and the the legislation that's coming out of out of the back end of that is very interesting because that then adds a human emotional element, element, not elephant, that, that would be weird, a human and emotional element to um, to legislation and to uh, changes in behavior. I think it talks, we can tell the story Sorry. with it's, an it's, emotional it's, way. It's, it's very it's true. It's, so you're saying a human and emotional element, what was just, say your last sentence again, uh, Vicky. Um, oh, just that it, it, it adds a, a human and emotional element to okay. um, 
to the whole process, to being better. People want to do better because otherwise people will die. Now that is a real reason to change your behaviour. We should change our behaviour because the government says that then we'll be more productive. Right, but so, so, the, so, the cultural, so the cultural essence of, as it were, BIM adoption is moving away from BIM as a thing per se and moving towards the results that BIM can facilitate. Yes. Something, something like that, particularly ones that are human in their implication. Right? Yes. Yeah, uh, that, think... that, sorry, Anna was just going to jump in there, and then I'll come back to you, Melanie. Anna, yeah, you, was... you, you, what, what, what were you saying there yourself? I missed you a bit there. I, I want to absolutely agree with with Vicky around that emotional storytelling. That mm. you, you know, we are in the twenty first century. We're in the in, in in the second decade, third decade of the twenty first century. We have people die. And then we realize that cladding is an issue and it takes us months, years to figure out which buildings are at risk. And how is that possible? How is that possible that in a, in a world where technology is pervasive, we have the technologies to represent building, but we do not have representation, digital representation, semantic representation of all the built assets so that we can ask questions like this. We've had it with asbestos, now it's 50 years on, and we still cannot find what makes up all buildings. Now that's an emotional narrative that we can say, actually we have the technologies, we have the mandates, we have the willingness, let's do better. Now, I don't have to explain PAS 1192-3. I don't have to, uh, to, to, to invoke ISO 19650 anymore that somebody that says, look, Grandma, here is a tablet. You click on here and you see the pictures of your grandchildren, right? Yeah. She no. has an emotional connection. You do not invoke JPEG example. standards when you do that. Great example. Melanie, you were going to say, no, I was just going to say, and I, I prefer a backpedaling a little bit, but I think that's what the mandate tried to do in that um, we've had so many reports come out down the years um, since the 1930s, basically telling us to do better. Um, thankfully, without a, a massive disaster like Grenfell, unfortunately. Um, but we just never got better. And I think the mandate, as, as much as the, the marketing around it struggled and it only reached a portion of the industry what it did do was open up a door to um, the likes of the UK BIM Alliance the UK BIM framework and uh, Central Digital Built Britain to to form and to um, come together to in an attempt to shift culture and in an attempt to um, generate the the upskilling required for industry and We've still got a long way to go, but for me, it's it is in the upskilling, and it's it's in how we take this this whole new direction and filter it down through our supply chain, so that it's it you know it it is realised as a as what we're trying to achieve at, at the end of the day when we hand over our our built assets. Um, and what I mean by by upskilling is is looking at how we're we're treating education and how we're treating training initiatives and and how we're linking in with what industry is actually doing. And maybe this is linked back to my university days when I didn't know what BIM was. And looking back, I was in university up until one year before the mandate came in. And really, you're thinking, well, 
actually the government strategy came out in 2011 so there's clearly something wrong there and i don't believe it's got much better um so i believe a lot of it is tied into um upskilling particularly culturally i don't think it's the the panacea solution i i just think that it it can stoke a few more conversations um and, and push us in the direction we're needing to go if you could wave a magic wand, right, and it could be a group of people demographically or professionally, if you could immediately make them all better trained to adopt BIM and use it well, which category would that be, Melanie? Just choose one out of many for upskilling purposes, if you had a magic wand. Oh, my goodness. I'd probably say clients. Um, oh, and that I think yeah. that covers a multitude of sins well, without trying to go down the church analogy even further. <laughs> You've revealed yourself, Melanie. You are a priest in the, in the BIM church dispensing. I, w- I would challenge uh, that very point because the most advanced BIM country has very immature BIM clients. So how can we though. evidence this? I think this is a fundamental misunderstanding. We, we have, very strangely for a rather Anglo-Saxon um, democratic um, and, and non-interventionist economic model, the UK, we've gone for a very interventionist um, model. The only more interventionist model that we've had in terms of BIM has been Saudi Arabia and Singapore. And, and the adoption in an SME-structured economy is very, very low because clients have very little... Uh, influence on how as soon as you get to tier two tier three or smaller size contracts it um, how, how how things are delivered they need to be emotionally better and they need to be economically better at the majority level and the client has no influence there well maybe but i mean i, I think you can bring the two points together i think your example right of seeing Granny showing, you know, being shown uh, grand grandkids' photos on the iPad, uh, and distinguishing that from, you know, JPEG standards. That's a very telling and powerful example. But of course, BIM can be, you know, processed in the same way. That's your point, right? But then when you reverse that, well, you have a client that expect those kinds of things, right? Next time. Yeah, so when Granny's at the, you know, at the at the club, and she, and she shows her iPad to her friend, and her friend goes home and says to her, you know, to her daughter, "Where's where's your iPad? <laughs> Why can't I see my grandkids?" Sorry, John. Is the, is what, well, I'm just trying to pull the pieces together. Is that there is a way in which Melanie's point and, and Anna's point can come together, which is that you know, if what we're talking about is upskilling, and and we're saying let's upskill the client, the client can just know. They, sh- they should have an iPad-type experience. Anna. It doesn't have to be a JPEG experience. They can just know they should expect better, right? I guess yeah. that you wouldn't... You wouldn't um, you, when you're buying a car, you don't care how it was built. And it's the same for a client for a building. You know, you want, you want to see some certificates to know that it's safe, but you, you wouldn't try and tell the team how to build it. And the same with the iPad yeah. analogy as well. You, the the granny them, herself doesn't. She doesn't need to know. She doesn't need to go into the settings and no, but how she, the iPad she works. She just wants the, she, the the final. And and so we made it work without a client mandate, saying that you have to right. use HTML to please grandma. Yeah. Sure, but the point I'm making is that client expectations and client understanding of the details are not the same thing. But you can 
I mean, trainers and perhaps not the wrong word, but you can you can upskill your clients. You can, we can create a culture in which the clients expect more. I mean, I mean, I just feel that there's a space there in the middle, which is that rather than saying that the clients need to have a technical sense of what you know BIM is or BIM does, they can have a sense of what these tools can deliver yeah. when used well. And I think yeah, that's and an exciting thing to imagine. Sorry, yeah, just to just to clarify as well, um, I absolutely don't think that the client's the only one that needs upskilled by any stretch of the imagination. What I what I'm saying is that upskilling is a very nuanced conversation to have. And I believe sure. clients need to be upskilled in some respect. And for me, that is knowing what to ask for. So it's not about knowing how things are created, because I agree, I, I don't care about how my car was created. But what I would care about is knowing what to ask for when I'm buying a car. And just yeah. for context, I've never bought a yeah. car. So <laughs> I would need that informative source or if i'm looking to buy my own house soon and i need that um level of expertise to come in and tell me how to do it and i believe really? that's what you know i i can or, or vice versa i can invest in in like a, a pack to um tell me how to go about buying my first house and i, I believe it's the same principles and i absolutely believe that that upskilling conversation stretches to everyone in the entire industry because in some shape or form it affects everyone in industry but the the point being is it's not a one-size-fits-all approach and that's something I, i'm a really really big advocate about is that what we've got at the moment just doesn't suit because we are trying to paint everyone with the same brush but in reality yeah. what i need is is different to to what alan will need and what vicky will need and to yourself john and that's just the nature of, of our industry yeah. it is i believe so I think there's a lot of cultures. I mean, my, one of my comments on the trans, on, on the content and the transformation of the BIM space is that actually a lot of very distinctive cultures that are covered under BIM, very straightforwardly. I mean, they really are what BIM does, but it does many things. And so there's at least two technical cultures. One technical culture is just the technical way of producing drawings and drawing on a computer. Another side of the technical side is of, of that dimension is coding, whether it's visual coding or actual, you know, scripting. Um, those two things are not the same technical culture, even if they look technical, they're actually quite different, you know, as it were, subcultures. One's more classical. A lot of people in construction can use technical tools, but very few can do coding. And that's a little bit reversing in architecture schools now where local can do coding and so forth. But um, those are two technical cultures. But then you, then you have, you know, documentation culture. You have data culture. Both of those are very important. You need to produce drawings and, 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 and shareable products in a way that is viable across, a, a, you know, a workflow that has lots of different skills. Vicky's point about data is fast. We, need, we don't have a data culture in most of AEC, but that needs to be, it's happening. It needs to be embedded underneath this very quickly and ultimately we have two other at least two other cultures we have the creativity culture can you create what you want with this tool in design and visualization terms and can you collaborate can you bring in people in the correct way and it's not the same as document sharing it's actually can i contribute and engage in a constructive collaborative way rather than just have information and share with me now that's at least five or six or seven cultures all of which are covered by bim and i think that um the the challenge, and I think it's you know this is where I I mean we have to I, I will be the first to say the word maybe it will be the last time we say it in this podcast but Autodesk is failing in that regard as the world leader in BIM software is not creating an environment in which those cultures 
become less visible. And what Apple has achieved, we use the iPad example, is a way in which very many different types of users, granny with her photos, somebody running to a meeting, somebody doing some sketching, somebody taking photos, somebody doing a recipe, very different use cases, just like the different cultures of AEC, can use the same tool and nobody knows. No one's going to pick up an iPad and say, geez, this is useless for me if I want to you know, do some sketching just because granny used it to take a photo. Right. But that is the case in Vim as we're struggling to get these, you know, nuanced, you know, blended usage. It's, it pretty much feels siloed. But um, let, let's let's park the, the, the culture conversation just for a second and get into um, some more of the, you know, uh, use case, um, use case uh, issues. Let's say let's say um, uh, that BIM and particular digital twins are being increasingly deployed or at least talked about in terms of building operations. All right. Um, what does that mean in practice? Is it, is it is it realistic? Is it just kind of hyperbole? What what do we what do we what does that what do people think that means? What does it need to mean? Shoot anyone. I feel like I, I, I feel like speaking too much. Um, now I I think it's really interesting that um, and and you you referenced them a minute ago. Autodesk was you know a, a strong investor in BIM and it actually talked to its audience, which were the designers of new built. And I, th I think um, where client needs to be educated is about the digital opportunity about the existing asset. You know, if 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 you think about I'm a I'm a campus, I'm a university. Um, yes, I will buy a few more buildings, but mostly what I should be focused is understanding how I use my existing one. And mm -hmm. and that is the most interesting and fascinating breakthrough that we are heading for with digital. Um, and I don't think it's BIM. I, th I think really it is a digital transformation and it is about touching the intangible through digital twinning. Now, what, what I like to, to think about is, you know, a, a, a university campus before even we went digital um, was actually the physical platform to deliver an educational um, maturing experience and also to interface that with an element of research. And, and it's a physical place where that happens. And we have to understand the relationship between the physical space and the outcome we want to achieve. And it's quite complex and multidimensional in a university campus. But let's take a much simpler example of a hotel. A hotel is there to provide you, first and foremost, a good night's sleep. What hotels sell you is a view, odd. They sell you square foot, my eyes are closed. Um, they sell you four star, it used to be that you had to have a phone in the room to get four star status, very odd. I'm still trying to get a good night's sleep. So where are we at actually re-examining all the built environment already built? digitizing, understanding through digital twinning, the experience we're delivering and trying to disassociate the physical thing from the experience so that I can, for example, in terms of sustainability, start avoiding to build bigger room, bigger things um, to deliver better experiences. Because ultimately we're never gonna go and manage to reduce our carbon footprint if you know better is defined as bigger. 
So I think that's the kind of things that with digital twinning um, and, and digital transformation of the built environment, we're going to get towards. Mm-hmm. Uh, Vicky, what do you feel about that? About the about the, the sort of dynamic operational opportunities for BIM post construction. Um, I think the opportunities for improvement in uh, in asset management mm. are vast. I think the opportunities for digital twins and BIM are irrelevant. Um, because I keep hearing people say uh, we have we're we're creating a digital twin of a building, and you think, well, firstly, that that seems quite wasteful, um, and what why? And it's so that we can say that we've got a digital twin. You know, it's it's a badge of honour. Actually, it it would be much more reasonable to twin a system in that building. Um, and use it to properly operate in the way that Alan was sort of describing there. You know, you find actual efficiencies using technology. Um, and that, it, it, I know I, I sound like a broken record, but when we're focusing more on being better and fixing problems, the technology supports that rather than choosing a technology or a method for, for digitalizing something and then figuring out how you you shoehorn your um, the operation of your building into that. Uh, Manny, do you agree with that? Which is basically, as I as I understand it, is BIM is becoming a shorthand for pathways that facilitate good outcomes for building construction and building operations and facilities management. In other words, BIM is not a thing in itself; it's not end in itself. It's a pathway to good outcomes, and to get there, you have to define the outcomes. You can't just define the BIM, as it were. Yeah, Yeah, I I 100% agree with that. And I think that's what um, I mentioned at the start is that, you know, BIM was originally marketed as, you know, um, being able to to create these savings in operational use. And that's, as I said, kind of fell by the wayside. Um, But it absolutely starts that conversation and is opening up many more opportunities, particularly regarding the information and the uh, what we do with that uh, information regarding assets management. So that's yeah. I mean, my approach to this, right? So, so, so when we, so we, we've invented a phrase, which is the only way it seems we can understand, can explain in generic terms what we do, which is service integration. What we say is, look, if you have a, a functioning modern building, you need to have an inter- you need to have user services like grocery delivery and cleaning and so forth integrated into the building proposition and sales technology and spatial terms um but the mission there actually is that if you do that it changes the dynamics of the retail and shopping experience and the supply chain and the building design and value so radically that actually they start to kind of merge and and so we take it sort of backwards which is that the more that you can design from first principles around that the more that you can you know capture the benefits of that i mean just to be very explicit one of the ways in which we can achieve a massive upgrade in efficiency and sustainability in the world of online grocery shopping is to do bulk delivery, right? If there's an apartment building of a thousand apartments, it makes precisely zero sense that those apartments get a thousand different deliveries every couple of weeks. So you'd want to do them in bulk. It's the same building. They're all meters from each other, but it, the building is not designed for that. 
not only is it not designed for it spatially, there's nowhere to put a thousand packages of groceries in one go uh, or park vehicles that are suitable to deliver that. There's no business structure to sell through the building, you know, the, a bulk purchase concept to users or to manage the distribution of the pallets of groceries that arrive. So the opportunity is definitely there. People get groceries at home. This is not a mystery. And yet we're doing the logistics in a broken way. And so what we believe service integration is, is that kind of more systemic evolution. But it requires, you know, that, that we take exactly as you're all describing an approach to BIM, which is what is the result you want to achieve? Okay, we want integrated services that leads to these huge efficiency gains. How does that mean we need data and design and optimization of the property? Oh, well, that gives us a specific set of instructions. We need this data about parking. We need that data about, you know, access regime. We need this data about the space available to, you know, storage and distribution of goods that arrive. Now, that's my validation or my experience of, of what you guys are sharing and, and, and sort of building, which is that if BIM is a tool that you put in, you, you actually miss the bigger picture, which is all the things it's needed for are way down the road of like, you know, um, uh, you know, to, I think it was, what was the what was the phrase one of you used? Uh, the uh, the purpose or the you know the the value or the or the concept that you're aiming towards. It isn't just build a building, make it optimal, and then hope that the use case sort of works itself out. It's the opposite. Uh, and so that's you know just to endorse your point that if BIM is to really become what everyone thinks it can be in terms of potential, I think it has to reverse its value proposition and say, tell us, you know, if we are the church of BIM, we are saying to clients in the world, tell us what you need. And BIM will can be configured operationally and technically towards those goals. That feels to me like the you know the, the evolution pathway, um, and it's particularly relevant to me in terms of the you know, facilities management and operations because it actually implies we need to use BIM. We, we get the data and the, the model we want, and then drive it back all the way down through uh, construction and optimization in a, in a cycle. Um, just on the uh, let's just just go to the urban level for a second because maybe it's not relevant to you guys. I'm just kind of curious how you feel about it. Do you feel that BIM is still the tool to be talking about using when we go to urban development design? Does it facilitate planning and and sort of city strategy, or is is BIM no longer the tool there? Digital twins, maybe I don't know. But what do you feel about city level, you know, d d spatial design optimization? I think BIM's just the label and Digital Twins is just the right, label right, for exactly. us to understand something that's more complex. Um, yeah. So I think whatever we end up calling it, yeah, there'll be a semblance of of what we used to call BIM and what we, what we used to call Digital Twins. But organically, it will, it will be something, it will grow into something that's, that's different and useful for that use. Um, yeah. I think if we try and pigeonhole it in the within the definition of BIM or a digital twin, then we're letting the technology lead the process, which is completely the wrong way about it. I, get, I mean, I sense that you guys might agree with that. It feels like we're converging on that overall view of BIM, which is that you know it itself defines insuff insufficiently defines the value. The value needs to be what guides us to to deploy BIM or whatever it may be called in the end. The that, easiest way, yeah, I think one way that I've described it before internally within my organization is that really a BIM or digital twin is a happy outcome of good process. So you should... Oh, that's a brilliant phrase. Yeah, you should never like set out to get those things. So say that again, just so we can like, you know, put it in gold letters. <laughs> I can't, I can't remember what I said. Um, so, but yeah... 
BIM and digital twins, that is a happy outcome of good process. It's not the target. Okay, gold letters, very good. I like that. <laughs> do, you, do you feel certainly likewise is that, you know, whether it's building level optimization or city planning and, and design, that it's just broadly speaking the same principle as that BIM is, is just one way of describing um, the process of, uh, a part of the process of getting to the goal that you're aiming at. Yeah, definitely. Um, it's it's obviously a, a much more complicated task in that there's a, a lot of considerations to make, but we're we're definitely moving in that direction. And as well, um, there's some amazing conceptual research that's been done into the likes of smart cities and um, macro scale information yeah. management. Um, it's in my mind, it isn't BIM and it isn't even digital twin, but like Vicky said, it's, you know, it's, it, they're, they're indicating a, a, a kind of process that can get us there. It's mm. so not a really eloquent answer. I apologize for that. <laughs> uh, so, do you, what, I mean, where are you, where, what's your feeling? I mean, maybe there's nothing to add, right? But in terms of BIM and digital twins and the urban scale. I, you know, I, I think it's urban scale. Um, I think, you, you you know, there's a narrow technical question and there's a broader, I think, um, uh, appropriation question. I think, yeah. I think yeah. the, 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 the lower technical question is obviously as the dynamic range of our, of our computers uh, allow us to address uh, a, a great range of scale, um, we, are, we are now able to, to um, get the, the, the macro resolution information to merge into campus scale, then city scale. Uh, and service scale, you know, Revit being a 32-bit application and then a 64-bit application w wasn't able to deal with things that were more than seven kilometer long, for example. Um, as soon as you went to uh, geodesic sizes in, in, in geospatial technology, you need to account for the curvature of the Earth. So you've got all sorts of technical problems there that actually created multiple disciplines addressing multiple use cases. Yes, yeah, city wants to understand what its infrastructure is, what is demand, what's the, what's the, what's the economics impact of putting an infrastructure in, etc. So, but I think the, the broader thing that I, I really want to avoid is this appropriation by the technical guys of something that already existed but wasn't augmented through technology. So then we, we, we once again get to a point where those that actually deeply understand and have the mm -hmm. long history of making these decisions are, are being um, replaced by, by techno geeks that don't understand the purpose. And then it, the alienation is so profound that one side gets to they don't get us, and the other side says they're relevant and dangerous. And we have to it's stop. Very interesting. Yeah, it's very interesting. So, so Brian Ringley, who's the head of, um, as far as I know, AEC Technology at, at um, Boston Dynamics, which is this robot company, and they're building a you know a kind of scanning application environment where you know this robot dog can go out onto construction sites and gather data. One of the comments he wrote recently in an article was that. Um, uh, which is very interesting, and it's not. I mean, it's, it's in line with what you're implying, Ella, and not enough people really say it. Is that too much expectation 
that BIM can just streamline workflows, leaves us in a situation where people who have specific skills that are not well captured under existing BIM tools just stop being able to do the things that they do, right? And it becomes an ideology that BIM will. So, for, and it's the specific example he gave is you know people who are on construction sites that are used to correcting drawings and they have skills that cannot right now be injected into BIM tools are no longer able to do what they are able to do in you know conventional um, paper drawing environments because you know the BIM tools are prescribing steps and actions and expectations that just don't really match the, the skills they have. And I'm sure that's true also at the level of urban planning and other disciplines involved in city creation, which is if you assume BIM is going to enable them, you may be wildly off, um, off beam. I've got a couple more questions before we can you know, wrap up, but on the question of, you know, because you, you talk mainly about standards, right? I mean, in terms of BIM in general, what do you all respectively feel about governance um, of the BIM space? In other words, who sets software standards, who sets regulatory standards? Are we in a world where it's it's working as it should? Is there a governance shift that's required? And is, is that inside the industry? Is it cultural? Is it legal is it professional what 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 about governance and standards in terms of you know overall progress for the for the field what do you, do you have views on that i think we're in a at the uk i mean it, we're in a really quite privileged position in that we're able to take lessons learned from our 1192 days um and apply them to this new globalization what, what do you mean by that uh, so what I mean is, is you know, so um, we we were one of the first to have standards in place as as part of the levels like level one, level two um, of BIM, and as as much as they had flaws, it meant that um, we had a, a baseline against which we could see how um, industry was um, uh, dealing with these standards and. It, they've since transitioned into the the ISO standards, the nineteen six fifty suite, and um, what I mean by we're privileged privileged in that sense is that we we could see what was going well with the eleven ninety two standards. We could see what was missing, what processes need to be needed to be addressed and changed, um, and now we're we're now pioneering the the internationalization of BIM standards, and we've also got the body um the uk bim framework that um you know produces the the guidance um and and you know has that central resource to that's accessible to all and it's a you know it's it's a brilliant position to be in now that's not to say there's there's not any issues and and we we really do still have a bit to go um in terms of of making sure that um it is you know accessible but it is truly accessible by all um but it's you know it's it's an approach that we're we're quite as i say privileged to to have mm. Vicky, what do you think about governance and, and and standards development specifically yeah i think there's there's always a fine line when you're talking about what what you're going to attempt to force someone to comply to because you then hit the point where you're stifling creativity and new ideas and i mm -hmm. think um the the ISO 19650 standards for BIM um, do a very good job of sitting at, at a high level. And then what we need to do is fill in the gaps below that. I think organically, we will begin to develop 
common languages that are accepted across the industry because um, platforms will start to adopt them as their as their main method of, of managing data. So for instance, our our software that we have, um, the we have a, a lot more functionality that's available to a user in a project if you use ISO 19650 naming conventions for your files, because then we right. can automatically generate workflows and machine uh, machine reading and learning can be in operation and can start to prompt things and make decisions on your behalf. Now, Nobody is forced to use that convention, but we find that if a client runs a project with us without that um, and starts to understand that they're that they're missing out, that there's functionality not accessible to them, then the next time they they change their methods and they they, for want of a better word, comply without feeling like they're complying. They've just made a positive choice. Um, and as we talk more or as as systems become more interoperable, we, there will have to start to be common languages and conventions that um, allow a better user experience. And that, I think, will then prompt standardization rather than mm. potentially too much governance or mandating. Very interesting. Anna, what, what is your view on that, on governance and, and standards development? Yeah, I, I think that was by Vicky, you know, the, the point about interoperability and and letting that emerge, I think, is very important. I'm personally of the opinion that we want the minimum intervention in terms of, of uh, governance and standardization, but we need to have very, very rigorous one uh, and learn from the past. So, um, for example, we can see that the most powerful information exchange platform that we've built so far is built on very, very few standards, right? We call it the waste of the internet. Um, TCP IP, uh, don't want to go into the IEEE standards that actually implement the networking infrastructure, but TCP IP, HTML, maybe MP3 and JPEG later. That's all it took. Um, and, and um, you know, we, we don't really need standards be, beside that. I think we need very strong governance. The most important net governance that we put in place was net neutrality. Uh, I think the equivalence um, in, in, in our world is to force um, what I would call API net neutrality, um, forcing mm -hmm. interoperability through open APIs. Um, yeah. And that's about all we need. Now, the ISO 19650, I think we, we, again, we need to trace right back to what was it for and what is it. It's a piece of language that allows a client, the UK public bodies that were um, through the BIM policy mandated to procure, um, they needed a, a, an artifact, they needed a language that a lawyer could put in the contract to say, you will do this. Uh, when we, we couldn't tell them, you will do BIM, that makes no sense. So we created a whole artifact um, of standards around it's going to be collaborative. Uh, I think this is really, really important, right? So, so the ISO 19650 is a definition of language that when you say, I want you to do collaborative BIM, what was collaborative? Okay, so you've got you've got a commitment, legal requirement to exchange information at stage gate through a common data environment, etc. 
and then and then the the information exchange is specified and so to be able to specify it i need i need another piece of language but so it's an artifact for procurement method it actually doesn't make bim work um mm. what makes bim work as we can see um is it it works totally well in proprietary systems um and i think that's the danger um the the danger is it it's a, what we are actually hoping for is radical adoption by the ecosystem. So we don't want to allow proprietary format to dominate. Mm, um, remember early email, you had to be on AOL, you had to be on MSN. It's only when the internet exchange format prevailed that we had radical ecosystem adoption. So that's what we want to mm. find out is what are the minimum requirements? What's the waste of the internet that trigger an ecosystem adoption that allows information to circulate? Mm, very well expressed. I mean, so one, one, piece of, one piece of governance that isn't about data, but may require, well, maybe it doesn't. I mean, I want to kind of, you know, get your, get your sense on this. Let's talk about, you know, representation in, in, in employment terms. In terms of uh, gender balance, racial, cultural integration and inclusion, um, and sort of other aspects of social um, progress in the AEC space, does BIM have a role here? Is there any? Is there any? You know, anything that needs to be touched on? I mean, I'm sensitive because because both yourself and Vicky and 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 Melanie, you 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 expressed little interest in having this as a main theme of the. Of the session, but it is notable, and it's why I raise it: is that you are, how can I put this, in in percentage terms, uh, under you 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 are a under women are underrepresented category, and you are leaders in that group. How do you feel about that, and how does it change if it should change? Mm-hmm. And I think the stumbling of your words there actually defines it really nicely. Like it's awkward to talk about people don't like talking about it and people don't like listening to people talk about it because it directly says we're doing something wrong and actually it's it's all because of our behaviors our biases whether they be conscious or unconscious right and right and so uh, and and also as a as a woman you're always asked about it as if you have the solution and okay, then it means that so we find that for women in bim specifically we have two instances where people will will come to request speakers from us. We have a we have six hundred and fifty members globally, all in technical roles in digital construction, mm. and um, we get either can someone come and talk to us about diversity, or we get can we have a woman for a panel, but we get no more. Yeah. And you're like, you know what? What what speciality? What you know? Is it do you do you just want someone with breasts? And then it doesn't really matter what they can add to the conversation. Or are you looking for a professional? And if you are, then we need to know the details of the professional that you're looking for so that we can give you the right person. Um, and I think in terms of the where that comes from, it, it comes from a place that starts way before the construction industry or, um, or jobs. It, it comes from bias in early childhood. So, for sure. you know, yeah. girls are girls are encouraged to to be a little bit more gentle with their toys to not ham and to hammer and bang and and run around and make noise um and it's been shown that girls in the classroom get scolded more often for shouting an answer out whereas boys are encouraged and all of all of that then 
builds up to the point where to be the only girl in your design and technology class right. is quite off-putting because you think, well, what's wrong? Why, why am I the only one who wants to do this? So you don't, mm. you don't put yourself out there. You don't put yourself forward for, sure. for it. Yeah. Um, and what what we tend to find in the construction industry, and I'm so sorry, Melanie. I will I'll shut up in a minute, and you can, you can <laughs> no, give your um, you can give your opinion. Um, but what we tend to find in the construction industry is young women coming in at graduate level happens hardly ever. We get such a small percentage because of that um, sensitive teenage period where you want to you want to follow what your peers are doing. And so even if you really think you'd love a job in construction, it's difficult to push yourself forward to that. But then we have this massive influx of women joining at a later stage in their career. So we don't get many Mm. returners. Um, If if someone takes a career break, we don't get many female returners, which is another issue. But we do get women in their 30s and 40s who have had careers elsewhere and then have come to construction, seen the opportunity and the challenge, find it really exciting um, and hang around. And so then when you look at things like the CIOB, so the Chartered Institute of Building, um, mm. you've got a wonderful female leader there. Um, and some of our, uh, you know, Dame Judith Hackett for um, for all of, the, uh, all of the great work that the government are doing around building a safer future. And you find actually there are, there are quite a few female leaders in construction. And I think it's because you, you have to, <laughs> it's hard to say this without saying without sounding really arrogant but you you have to be a little bit more exceptional so if you've lasted that long in this industry mm. you tend to reach a higher level as a woman um so yeah i covered about 900 topics there but that's my that's my um word vomit for you no i i, I hear you melanie hi yeah um yeah. no i i absolutely agree with everything Hickish just said and uh I, I just uh, having flashbacks there of the word bossy. I think that was one that always haunts girls um, mm. when they they try and take a lead in something and it's they're they're deemed bossy. Um, but no, it's it's interesting. I was actually reflecting on this today. Um, I was reflecting on how I'm nearly always the only female on many a project call, um, and that I didn't really pay attention to it. And and I know uh, some people may chastise me for that. Um, others may not, but. I am a, a very, very, very firm believer of um, I want to be given opportunities because of what I can do rather than who yeah. I am. Um, and I realise that that's coming from a place of, of privilege because I, I've been, you know, I've, I've you know, I'm, I'm educated and I've, I've, you know, been lucky to, to be offered a, a few opportunities um, that others may not have from my background. But at the same time, we need to just remember that like we're all humans and you know i i we, none of us want to be put on a pedestal just because as vicky's quite eloquently put and uh, because we've got breasts it's i i'm a i i absolutely um am a huge fan of seeing these these great women in great positions and not thinking about it i think that says so much um and another one is is Anne kemp who obviously has quite a few fingers in quite a few different pies, um, not least the the chair of, of UK BIM Alliance. So, um, but it's fantastic that it's it's never once been challenged um, as to why there's so many women. Um, it's it's just a, an accepted fact, and and maybe that's something that that comes with 
um, what we're attempting in this digital space in that it, you know, it, it's created a new opportunity for a lot of different people, not just women, uh, for a lot of different factors because it's changing what we saw the construction industry to be, which traditionally has always been seen as um, dirty, hands-on, but in reality it's not. And we know that, but um, now it's starting to show the world that it's not that as well. Um, I only wish that when I was in school and I was choosing all of my subjects and choosing my career path, I only wish I knew about half the the stuff that was available in the construction industry. And I think my career would be very different if, like today, if I hadn't gone down the route I had. But that's not to say I regret it. I think I've come out a, a, a stronger person for it. But it's just an interesting thought to have. Anyway, that's my verbal. Uh, well, I, so so hopefully you'll be you'll be pleased to learn that it's nothing to do with your breast status that <laughs> got you on this podcast. It's because you're extremely gobby and opinionated and brilliant people actually i don't we've never met right but the only reason why you know you um surface is because you make your voices very clear actually uh and so you know i know alan through 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 twitter and 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 then through you know the networks that were associated around that and i've seen both of you interact in conferences and with professionals and in content that basically i consider to be the leadership the leading conversation of bim Right, so it's it's purely your. Um, I say this in, in in a good sense. Your 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 bossiness and 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 content leadership that makes it worth talking to you, right? Because I think I think part of your point in 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 pushing back on on my sort of question of whether we should add add more representation oriented content to this conversation was why can't we just talk about it, right? You know, this is what we're here for anyway, and I think that that sort of speaks for itself. I, I think one of, the, one of the points you made, Vicky, was actually very interesting, is that if we're talking about representation, by the time people are getting jobs or looking for jobs, it's already too late, right? I think what you're partly implying is that the educational typing that takes place without anybody intending to give, you know, um, signals or uh, you know uh, constriction in terms of, p of people's career options around gender actually happens from a very young age, and if we're not talking about that, it's too late to talk about it in terms of career choices in some ways anyway. Right? Uh, well, I mean, I'm not implying it; I'm saying it outright. Yeah, um, yeah. and <laughs> I think, but I, I think that's sometimes the problem as well, though, because we look at that as employers and we go, "Well, there's nothing we can do," which is all yeah. crap. Like there's always something you can do to be better. Um, right. It's appreciating that not only as employers, but also as parents and teachers and aunts and uncles and people with friends with kids, everything we do affects the next generation and the choices that they make. So we have a lot of responsibility there. Mm. Okay, so final question. Um, so... Alan and I have have you know spoken uh, privately a little bit, little bit, and the previous podcast spoke a little bit about this thing called the metaverse, and and there's sort of two ways of of thinking about that. One is it's just a general phrase to describe the 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 the, the digital double, not twin in the technical sense, but the digital environment in which people's avatars exist, in which characters exist, in which stories exist around any of the content or interests in our lives. It's way beyond the AC space. And also there's a sense in which, you know, a specific gaming company, Epic Games, and their gaming engine, Unreal Engine, wants to create a more specific environment, starting with, for example, Fortnite, which is one of their gaming environments that they have started putting concerts and other activities into under the heading of the metaverse. Now, the question I'm kind of getting at is, 
if what we're saying as part of this conversation is BIM isn't really a thing per se, it's part of a process um, that gets you to good outcomes, um, do we need another name for for digitalization of environments? Is there an, are we going to absorb ourselves into a kind of much broader concept of digital space, which might end up being called the metaverse, or is that itself another abstraction we don't need? Is the metaverse something that will take over from BIM, or no? That's roughly the question. <laughs> Alan, do you want to go with this one? Because I keep I've, I've spoken a lot. I'm very happy. I mean, that's where, as a digital agitator, uh, I exist. I mean, you know, you, you've got a sense that I like concepts being well articulated and designed, preferably by academics, to allow us to, um, to create additive knowledge. So I don't think BIM is going to disappear anytime soon because it's a really well articulated concept of, of the semantic representation of the built world as we inhabit it at the complete opposite end of that really tangible. We've got this concept of digital mirror and mirror world and, and starting with Elon Musk asking, you know, do we live in a simulation? And, um, and, and halfway between, we have this emergent concept, which are quite like around this idea of the metaverse, because, uh, you know, we had Second Life as an iteration of, you know, what happens when we go and live into a gaming environment. Um, you know, all these increasingly powerful, uh, large extent world with more polygon, more space, more, more player, more avatars. You know, what happens when we actually start setting the gravity constants to 981 and when we start putting in there cities that are actually a representation of real cities? What, what does that do? And I think um, we're we, we quite, um, we, we, we quite um, blessed with that simple definition of it, it creates a, a digital persistent world where we can get a sense of agency over the real world and our communities and, and our philosophies and, and over our societies. So, so this is the digital mirror, but a digital mm. mirror with an entry point and a purpose. And the purpose mm. is that sense of agency. So when you say what is BIM and get, does it get subsumed? Well, BIM is all related to the physical world and a semantic description. So when you want to actually point at something in the metaverse and you say, what's that? And you are expecting a semantic response. That's the door into your house. Then there needs yeah. to make an API call to a database that holds the concept of door, house, yeah. hallway, and the API call returns, um, yep. That's that's the, that's the door, and it's blue. Please render it as blue into that gaming environment. Um, open it is my agency, and then I actually can go into the house without physically moving. Um, I think it's hugely exciting. Doesn't disappear. Uh, doesn't doesn't replace digital twins. Doesn't replace BIM. It just creates a new concept of agency. So if I, if I sort of broaden that slightly um, to round it off with your, yourself, Melanie and, and, and Vicky, if, if there are these larger digital environments that are much less formally technical, so that, that's one way of describing what Alan's saying, they're not designed for buildings, they are just visualization and experiential environments in the digital realm. 
do, do you have a sense of a relationship to BIM? Will they take over from BIM? Will they be a parallel with BIM? Alan's, I think, implying that they they will actually quite nicely sit together because they do slightly different things. What do you have a feeling on the on those kinds of things? <laughs> We don't know, but it's fun to guess, isn't it? Um, I mean, that's the, that's the thing about this kind of stuff. It's like, um, to a point, it's <laughs> you can, more than welcome to cut this out, but it's like theoretical masturbation. We like to guess and, um, and we like to label things and we like to imagine the future. We don't know. We, we genuinely don't know, and I think that's the that's the joy of it as well. So I could sit here and I say I could say now, yep, absolutely, um, BIM and the metaverse will there. It's a na- natural progression from one to the other, or they fit together. They will fit together yeah. well. I have no idea, but yeah. hey, it sounds great. It, it definitely is a, a four o'clock glass of wine kind of conversation. Um, <laughs> it it's. An interesting one, um, and I think um, because I'm so focused on on getting the basics right and the foundations right for BIM, it's it's just a bit far out of my my comfort zone. But that's not necessarily a bad thing. It's it's definitely worth you know picking brains and um, and having these conversations. What I would just be cautious of is derailing and and creating. And I, I know I'm going to get backlash for this. Uh, BIM Church Number Two, or in this case, Metaverse church you it's know it's, yeah it's, it's just making sure, sorry it's just making sure that you know it, we're not shutting out um worthy voices i guess um by this yeah. this certain level of abstract uh, abstraction that we're going down i think you're being very polite i mean the the way i would describe it is that you know and, and so this has been part of the private conversation with with anna that i've had as we sort of you know think about these things is that um right now the it's yes Ricky, it is theoretical masturbation technically speaking but it's also multi-billion dollar business you know wheeling and dealing behind the scenes because a lot of companies would like to be the hosts of digital environments digital space digital concepts um and how they relate to bim and aec is a, is up for grabs and i do think there are more or less constructive ways of of doing it where, where i think that you've landed something very um Actually, powerful, Melanie. And we'll kind of leave this maybe as the, as the final point is that the culture that builds up around these technologies is very important, right? Just because something is called the metaverse doesn't mean that we have to think of it in those terms. And I think we do have the opportunity in terms of people that have vested interests may wish to, you know, present to us. And that definitely has happened with BIM, right? A lot of the BIM conversation, why we have to unpack it so often and so much and get to the point where BIM is just a shorthand for some aspects of a process of creating good you know, built in spatial results is that, frankly, there are, you know, some large technical actors that have a vested interest in defining them one way or the other. The same is going to be true for the metaverse. Um, and while, you know, often the products that they create are essential to what we do, there's a there's a cultural issue, as you say, Melanie, of avoiding creating a church around it and getting the best out of it without getting lost in kind of language or, you know, even, um, you know, ideologies or, 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 or you know expectations from a more uh, religious standpoint. Well, so I think we covered a small fraction of all of the themes that are up in up in the air. But I think we've actually actually contributed some useful um, insights and got to some I think you know healthy conclusions as to how we can use BIM without, as it were, proselytizing and being part of the church of it. So I'm extremely grateful for you joining in and looking forward to keeping these conversations going over a glasses of wine next time. <laughs> yeah, thank you for having us, John.
Thank you. Thank you. Thanks, Anna. Till the next time.